Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, I will uh, begin looking at Deus Irae, uh, written by Philip K. Dick and Roger Zelanzi. Um, it was published in 1976. Um, the story behind Deus Irae's, there's a little bit of a history here. It's it's not that much. It's um, kind of, it was originally conceived of by, by Philip Dick. There's a lot of concepts in the novel that Dick explored in some of his short stories. For instance, the Great Sea makes an appearance here. There's an autofac. There's uh, the post-apocalyptic setting with weird creatures, which we saw in, uh, oh, I forget the novel, or I forget the short story's name, but that's where uh, really Earth gets taken over by these these creatures that have evolved from from different bugs and things, and humans have to leave leave Earth. Um, um, I, forget, I forget the name of that short story, but it was something he wrote early in the 1950s. <clears throat> So there's a lot of these ideas there, and it kind of gets combined with his interest in religion that he was really developing in the in the 70s. Um, now the first part of the novel was written by Philip Dick in the or in the 60s, and he had actually had a contract to write this book, and he never quite got through it. He tried to get help from someone else, and and eventually Roger Zelani tries to help him with some of the theology stuff. And I think when this was happening, even before Dick was really into Gnosticism after his experiences of 1974. Um, and then they eventually get forced by the publisher to either Dick either has to return his advance or the book has to get done. So they rush and get it completed and it gets published in, in 1976. Um, not one of his uh, most admirable works, to be sure. Um, but still, I think there's some interesting things to say, and I, I think there's there's it's worth worth taking a glance at if if maybe not maybe not reading unless you're a diehard diehard um, Philip Dick fan. I think I said earlier I was going to do this this book in in three parts. I think I'm just going to do it in two parts and and um, put it out that way because I, I don't want to waste too much of our time on this novel. I just want to highlight the important things that we need to to say about it. So, um, and that way we can get on to his other works of the 1970s. Like, uh, we got a story, we've got Eye of the Sybil to look at, which I think was unpublished during his lifetime. So the next work he actually published is, is The Scanner Darkly, um, which uh, in my view is his last great novel. Um, the stuff that comes after that aren't, aren't, aren't the greatest. Um, but yeah, but we're, we do have to take a look at this because it is, it is on the list, um, and it is mostly Philip K. Dick's work, I, I think. Uh, Roger Zelani helped him at certain parts, but, you know, it feels like a Philip Dick novel in a lot of ways. And yeah, I had a hard time actually identifying the parts that Roger Zelani helped with. And I haven't read a lot of Zelani's work, work actually. So um, I just saw a lot of Philip K. Dick and the weirdness. And actually, that's one thing I like about this is it does have a lot of this this weirdness and weird kind of strange creatures and... And, you know, the armless, legless, incomplete person that, like we saw in Dr. Blood Money. There's a lot of, like, you know, bits, like it's kind of like a shattering of, of Dick's 
kind of fun ideas that he had throughout his career, and they all get kind of crammed together into this in this story. Essentially, the story is about uh, uh, an incomplete. This is a, a kind of a term for a someone who's physically handicapped. In, in this case, he doesn't have arms and legs, right? So it's kind of like the the villain of Doctor Blood Money. Um, and actually, as in that novel, he has a cart that he. He's kind of cyber, cyber, uh, cyborg of sorts. He's got this cart that lets him manipulate things. And he's an artist. And he works for the Servants of Wrath, the SOW. Um, the same acronym for Survivors of the War, but this is actually a religious movement that emerges in the years after a nuclear war called the Smash. Now, the thing set, the, the novel set only like 15 years after the war. And I think the war takes place in 1982. So it's it set sometime in the 19, late 1990s. But, um, you know, there's a scene, the scene with the great sea, which is taken right from the short story. You actually get the same questions. If you remember the short story of the great sea, it's where uh, villagers like decades and decades, generations after a war, send um, people to ask questions of, of this old supercomputer. And they can't, you know, if they could trick the supercomputer, they can live. That's the idea. But if they can't, they become a sacrifice to it, which in the, in the supercomputer learns to, you know, process human bodies to, to sustain itself, right? But they ask questions like, why isn't there, you know, why is there rain or, or, or why does the sun move? Like, these are questions that make sense people would ask generations after a nuclear war, right? When they've basically been reduced to survival, they lose that knowledge, right? These people, you know, they remember the time before the war, it seems it wasn't that long ago. So why would they not remember this knowledge, this basic science? It, it's a bit weird, right? Uh, now, in that sense, the novel does feel kind of incomplete and, and, and not fully thought out at times. Um, but the core idea is not bad. So this guy, Tibor McMaster, he's this incomplete who's got this cart. And he's painting this mural. He, he, he works essentially for the Servants of Wrath. And his job is to paint the Deus Eri, the, the God of Wrath, who is uh, a man named Karl Luftenfeld. Sorry, Luftenfeld. Uh, Karl Luftenfeld. And he's actually the guy who designed the bomb that kind of ended the war and destroyed most of the life. So this is a really cool idea that after, the, of course, after a nuclear war, you're going to get new religious movements, right? And so there's kind of a theological debate going on in much of the early part of the novel between the remnant Christians who have been declining in, in membership. Not many people joining up in the church or, or, you know, or participating in it. The real church has taken off as the servants of wrath because basically to give meaning to the war, they have to understand that the God of, of the Bible is not the loving God that we see maybe in like, you know, in some aspects of the Bible. It's actually the vengeful God. You know, it's like the Old Testament deity is the true God. And therefore, our purpose in life is just to kind of embrace uh, that wrath and, and be part of it and to, to move on to the afterlife. So death becomes a glorious thing, not something we need to fear or, or be anxious about, right? Like in the Christian idea that, of course, the afterlife does lead to eternal life, but there's this anxiety about having your soul prepared for, for death. That's not really the case for the servants of wrath. And we'll talk about their theology later on. But uh, Tibor, my master, is, is ordered, hired to paint this mural, a church mural, and he can't because he's the kind of person who paints from life and he can't paint Karl Luftenfeld without the accurate, picture of him they give him a picture but the picture's like a snapshot from 
before the war and it doesn't really captivate who he is so he has to go on a pilgrimage then to actually find Karl Luchtenfeld who's still alive right so he's been deified he's been turned into this god-like figure a christ-like figure but he's still alive I don't want to, Christ figure might be the wrong way but in the sense it's it's a it's god in in a man's body but it's still alive somewhere so the idea is Tibor McMaster is going to go find him he's going to go on this pilgrimage to where he's last known to be it's a thousand mile journey from Utah to California coast where he's going to find Carl Luftenfeld find his get his imagery and 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 then be able to draw you know paint paint the mural so he has to go off and do this quest and on the way he meets weird creatures um and then you know things are going to happen and I'll, I'll go into what what all happens in the in the novel as i as i talk about the chapters but that's the basic plot so it really centers on this conflict between these two religions that have well one religion that developed after the war and then the one kind of pre-war religion that survived and then a lot of the rest is just this shattering of, of dick's other ideas um i think the core that's going to be of interest to people is this uh this new religion that emerges and i think also the question the core theme of 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 imagery like like icons in religion and how deities are depicted and how religious figures are depicted and whether they have to be depicted accurately right right so there's so many different images of christ right none of them are accurate we don't know what you know christ if even was a historical figure look like right and you get different cultures will depict them differently based on their own representations of, of what they think people look like right and so you're going to get very diverse and then different artistic cultures will have different ways of depicting them doesn't matter that you get it right right now Tibor McMasters thinks clearly yes you have to have this you have to have it right um, but you know other people tell them you know it's not a big deal actually what matters is the spiritual experience of 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 you know interacting with a, a religious imagery but uh, Tibor McMaster wants the real thing, and it turns out he doesn't get it. And that's the, the he thinks he maybe gets it, but he doesn't really have the true image of of Karl Luftenfeld, the Diosari, the God of Wrath. So the whole point here is about religions being based on on a lie, right, or being based on false false knowledge. And so maybe it's useful to just talk about Gnosticism. A little bit, which is probably the one aspect of Dick's, I guess, worldview that I'm, I'm, I'm the weakest on. So I really have to rely on, on Wikipedia here. So, um, so Gnostics is kind of a branch of, of early Christianity, right? The early um, first couple centuries, Christian of you know, in within Christian communities, there was these Gnostic texts that came out, right? And of course, as as we know from our history. The Nicene Council kind of clarified the theology with the creed and then clarified like the text that would be in the Bible. Right. And of course, it, you know, it got changed. The Protestants had a different, slightly different Bible. But the kind of the core books that made it, the Christian texts that you know were going to be in the Bible were, were established in the New Testament were established there. But there's all these other books floating around. Right. And some of these are in this Gnostic tradition. Right. So here's what Wikipedia tells us about Gnosticism. So it's a modern name for an ancient religious ideas and systems originating in Jewish Christian milieu in the first and second century AD. These systems believe that the material world is created by an emanation or works of a lower God, a demiurge, trapping the divine spark within the human body. This divine spark could be liberated by gnosis, spiritual knowledge acquired through direct experience. Some of the core teachings include the following. One, matter is evil and non-matter spirit realm is good. 
Two, there is an unknowable God who gave rise to many lesser beings called aeons. The creator of the material universe is not the supreme being, but an inferior God, a demiurge. Gnosticism does not believe for Gnosticism does not deal with sin, only ignorance. And five, to achieve salvation, one needs gnosis, knowledge. These Gnostic ideas flourished in the Mediterranean world in the 2nd century AD in conjunction and influenced by the early Christian music and Middle Platonism. After the 2nd century, a decline set in the Persian Empire. Gnosticism in the form of Manichaeism spread as far as China, while um, Manidaeanism is still alive in Iraq. Okay, so that's some of the core ideas. Now, a lot of this is, is hinted at in the, in the text, right? This the Karl Luftenfeld is essentially described here as a demi as a demiurge, right? But not a creator demiurge, but a destroyer. One, uh, the focus on knowing the true form of of the Dies Irae, right? Depicting them accurately is kind of this Gnostic goal of having the true understanding of 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 what the world's about and both religions here both the christian remnants and the servants of wrath are after this truth and that they kind of get at it through a through a through a debate uh the idea that our purpose on world is like the real god is destructive and this world is kind of meant to be destroyed and and our lives even are meant to be destroyed ties to that gnostic idea that first point uh, in the Wikipedia article, that matter is evil, and the non-material spirit, spirit realm is is where goodness uh, lies. So, anyways, I'm, I'm kind of weak on this, so maybe some people can can join in. We're gonna have to kind of come back to some of these ideas when we get to the Vala stuff, but it's really starting to be played with in this this novel, particularly the idea of a of a of a demiurge or a, a lower god that that. Well, spiritual beings that aren't God, but are, I guess, creations of God or, or servants of God or, 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 you know, that do things like in the case, like for some Gnostics, it was the creator was a demiurge. But in others, you know, even the devil could be a demiurge. They're not all necessarily good. There are traditions of Gnosticism that seem to hold that there were um, bad demiurges. And that kind of fits our description we're given of, of Karl Luftenfeld. So, um... Yeah, so this this is a an odd novel, Deus Irae, because it, it's almost one you have to read to if you want to f- fully understand Dick's Gnosticism, and that's what a lot of people are interested in, right? And that's why they might go to Vallis or the Exegesis to find you know to, to to read. But I think if you're interested in some of the other elements of Dick's writing, like his his you know humanity, uh, relationships, uh, capital. Uh, technology, you know, a lot of the work, the, a lot of things we've been talking about, you know, they're hard to get at. You know, I guess you have with Tibber McMaster's someone trying to find meaningful work through through his art and and the and the, and the creator. Dick was very interested in the in the creative mind as as a hero. That that said, you know, it's it doesn't really talk about a lot, most of those issues as much as as people who really like his '60s stuff would have would have appreciated. At the same time, it's it's got so many um, check marks. It's got so many, I, I guess, themes and uh, themes wrong term, I guess, tropes. Philip Dick tropes, uh, especially from his early fiction, that it, that's a bit of a throwback, and it's fun to read to be reminded of those old stories that that you read, you know, back in the fifties, um, or that we read that he wrote back in the fifties. So I don't know. I'm kind of a mixed minds about Deus Irae. Deus Irae. Um, 
So I, I find a lot in here to like, but I understand the people who find it really frustrating because a lot of it doesn't work. A lot of the characters, you know, like for us, I think a big problem is that these characters seem to have been born before the war, but they act as if like everything before the war didn't exist. Now, why didn't Dick set this in, you know, th- four generations or 10 generations after the war, right? Then, then he could a lot of this would work better, especially like the evolution of all these creatures in the middle part of the novel. He meets like bird people and kangaroo people and lizard men and stuff all evolve from the radioactive fallout. That maybe makes, you could kind of buy that if it's generations later, right? It doesn't, you don't really, can't imagine this stuff evolving in 15 years. But why did then didn't Dick and Zelaney set it way in the future? Well, it's it's obvious why. It's because he's got this quest where he's trying to find the real Carl Luftenfeld and to see him in person, right? To find, you know, the to find the, the Jesus like figure. And he has to be alive to do to do that. So you can't set in the future, but they don't want to throw out like these other weird ideas they have. So that that I think is the, the core problem in the novel. Just that why one reason it doesn't really work. So um, anyways, let's just jump into the story and, and talk a little bit about it. In, in chapter one, we were introduced to Father Handy, who meets Tibor, my master, arrives. And he's got this one, he's got this cart that's pulled by a, a cow. So it's kind of, he has to rely on animal power. But so is a cyborg that's kind of powered by uh, a cow. It's kind of a nice little twist on this because, you know, where is he getting his energy from for his cybernetics? There are going to be robots like farmers in the story too, which are kind of a fun idea. It's not clear where they're getting their energy from or where the great seeds get its power from. Um, but he's kind of, he's got this mechanical th- arms and legs and stuff and he's an artist. So he needs to manipulate brushes and he's able to do it quite well. The same way uh, Happy Harrington and, and Doc, Dr. Blood Bunny was able to manipulate things really well with his mechanical device. Um, but he's got this like cow that's always pulling him around, and he's got to go on this thousand-mile pilgrimage to California. Uh, he's post in this post-apocalyptic setting, you know, in this like essentially a wheelchair pulled by a cow. It's it's kind of a nice image. Um, but anyway, so Tibber McMaster comes to to visit Father Handy, who's kind of his boss. Father Handy is father of the Servants of Wrath, um, and so we start out with the point of view of Father Handy. And he's invited in, and we have uh, Father Handy's wife, Ellie, and she's a minor character. Uh, the female characters here aren't very well-developed. We have basically Father Handy's wife, and then we have uh, kind of a, a woman who leaves the servants of wrath to join up with the Christians because she's sleeping with a, a Christian, and she's just a, she's like a token hot chick to put into the, the story. And she's another unfortunate depiction of a woman uh, about... You know, Ellie's in a way even where she's just kind of the exploited and, and neglected and and misused wife of this of this priest. Uh, obviously, I, so servant of wrath priest can can marry. They they drop that prohibition. Um, but anyways, uh, Tibor comes in and they have a conversation uh, on just theology. Now, one important thing we learn about Tibor here is the importance of the job for him. It's, it's a really a moral responsibility for him that goes even beyond the religious. Um, that he's been he's been asked to paint this mural. He takes it as really serious. He wants to do it properly. He wants to do it right. And 
it's it's almost like that's his religion almost is the craft and i think that's a nice thing about his character and and something that we we need to emphasize because that is a very dickian motif is the creative person who really finds meaning in you know in doing something creative it doesn't matter for what purpose right it's almost like the raising of held scala right it's it's a kind of it's it doesn't really matter if it's held scala or some other temple right it's just that it's, it's a grand project to 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 work on and for tibor mcmaster his great project is this is this mural uh, but so father handy gives him this old picture of of carl lufton fell but it's really not good enough and he says i can't work from this and father handy knows this and basically this means he's going to have to go and try to find find him go on a pilgrimage quote a pilg the l turn of the church says that the photograph is inadequate and it is and we know all it is all of us you must go on a pilgrim until you find the deus airy and they sent documents pertaining to that uh, now tibber is horrified by this because he, you know his battery is not going to last so he does have some electric battery but there's no way he's going to make it a thousand miles he'll have to rely on his this cow to drag him uh he's you know he's in a wheelchair essentially so you know who knows what the roads are like and there's all kinds of weird creatures on the way so he's terrified at this pilgrimage and he doesn't want to go on it but he realizes that's the only way he can do his his job um chapter 22 picks up with this and oh no actually uh it's now it's father handy talking to kind of like higher up in the church in the servants of Ryoff's hierarchy dominus mccomas and he's and they talk about Carl Luftenfeld. This scene is actually quite a bit of, of exposition for, for the reader. We learn that Carl Luftenfeld was chairman of the Elect Energy Research and Development Administration um, from, 18, from 1982 to the beginning of the war. And he is basically the person who developed the weapons that, would, that killed most of, of the people, uh, or killed like a billion people in the war and really created the world in the situation it's in he's, he's he kind of parallels dr blood money in a way now in dr blood money it was it was a delusion of his that he he caused the war right or it's kind of a it's a, it's ambiguous in that case here carl luftenfeld did develop this weapon as it's, it's like a historical fact and this is what gets him kind of raised to divine status as the survivors of the war then have to give meaning to this destruction and one way they do that is by uh, divinating, making divine—I don't know the right word for that—but making divine this this weapons developer essentially. Now we get this uh, description of the servants of wrath theology throughout this chapter, and that's mostly the point of this chapter. And you know, we're not going to be able to talk about every aspect of it, but I, I just want to highlight one passage that does seem to emphasize it's kind of gnostic—that it is sort of a gnostic religion. Quote, but what for the servants of wrath did sin consist of? The weapon of the war, one naturally thought of the psychotic and psychopathic Cretans and high palatias and dead corporations and government agencies, now dead as individuals. The men at drafting boards, the idea men, the planners, the policy boys, the PR infants, infants like grass, their flesh. Certainly that had been sin, what they have done, but that had been without knowledge. Christ, the God of the old sect, had said said that about his murderers they did not know what they were up to not knowledge but a lack of knowledge had made them into what they had been frozen into history as they gambled for his garments or stuck aside with the spear there was a knowledge 
in the Christian Bible, in three places that he personally knew of, despite the rule within the Servants of Wrath hierarchy against reading the Christian sacred text. The first lay in the book of Job, one in Ecclesiastes, the last, the final note had been Paul's letters to the Corinthians, and that had, and, and then it had ended. The Tertullian and Origen and Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and even the divine Abelard, none of them added an iota in 2,000 years, end quote. So what you have here is the focus not on sin. The sin is kind of, it's, it's there, but it's, it's kind of indifferent. The real goal is knowledge. And then the kind of the criticism of all the church fathers who came after this Gnostic era as kind of codifying truth instead of actually seeking truth out in the texts and in these early books, it's all about kind of a rigid kind of definition of doctrine. And the war allows then a kind of a rethinking of this tradition. And for the servants of wrath, they throw it out and they, they find a truth in, in a different idea, a different identity of God, which they find is more reflective of the way the world actually functions. In a way, the servants of wrath emerge out of an attempt to deal with the problem of evil, right? which is something Dick was very interested in. Right? The problem of evil, of course, being how do you justify good God with evil in the world, especially natural evil um, or evil at the scale of war and holocausts. And and usually there, there's answers to that, of course, and, and Christians have been dealing with that for a long time. But but one possible answer is to, of course, say, well, the God is is evil, right? That Or God is wrathful, at least. If, if you don't want to use the word evil, he's wrathful and destruction and, and violence and death is all part of the plan. So in chapter two, we're also introduced to, to um, what's her name? Lurine Ray, or Mrs. Ray, she's often described. And she's in the Servants of Wrath, and she talks to, you know, this um, Father Handy, and explains to him how she's basically thinking about leaving the Servants of Wrath and joining up with the Christians. She's actually, um, she's sleeping with this guy Sands, who is Peter Sands, who is a Christian. And she really much likes this prominent Christian uh, leader, Dr. Abernathy, who she talks to a lot. And, you know, what's interesting here in this place, it's Charlottesville, Utah, you know, where the two religions, they have a theological disagreements, but they're not fighting, right? And the servants of wrath aren't trying to eradicate the Christians violently. It's just the Christians are kind of dying out. and They're kind of, they're almost like a weird cult that most people don't follow but she becomes interested and attracted to to this religion and she starts to move towards it and this kind of leads into chapter three which mostly is about at dr abernathy luring ray and this this peter sands and so actually we start out learning about peter sands kind of experiments in hallucinogenic drugs so he experiments with different drugs to get into mental states where he's he's hoping to see God. So he's a bit of a mystic and in in a very in very much in a Philip K. Dick way, he uses drugs to get at this mystical experience. So that's his quest he's on. And so he's always taking these different drugs, trying to have these these experiences. Now Lurine Ray is, is with him and they have a relationship. And they banter a little bit on theology as well and actually what he's trying to achieve and the importance. Is it important to to see a divine, to have a divine experience that that's real, or is it more important to just kind of experience it? And I mean, the conflict here is well, the servants of wrath, Carl Luftenfeld is like a historical figure that 
they is presumably still alive that they can kind of see and understand you know and it's he's historical he's not like jesus right or he's not like god who has to be experienced in other ways um and which is of course the whole point of the novel with this quest to find the the mural or to to find his depiction so he can have an accurate mural right tibber mcmaster thinks there's something important in having the realistic image and their their debate basically parallels the overall theme of of the novel here but nonetheless he's going to use these drugs to try to get into these experiences and he does he has um pete goes into this hallucinogenic trance through these drugs and he meets a, a pot and the pot calls himself oho and pete interprets this as a chinese name so he thinks he's seeing a basically a chinese pot talking to him um, but here's what he says. He says, I am from the earth and not superior mortals. I'm not above identifying myself. I'm always beware of manifestations too lofty to identify themselves. You are Peter Sands. I am Oho. What you saw, that figure holding the large ancient volumes, that was an entity of the new sphere from the seas of knowledge who came down all the way from Sumerian times. A, theo, a therapeutic, therapeutic, they, they assisted the Greek helper, also Petties as spirits or plasmic life forms of wisdom, as they call themselves, thought to the Egyptians. And when they built, and when they built, they are excellent artificers. They were Pathath to the Egyptians and Hephaestus to the Greeks. They actually had no names at all, being a composite mind. But I have a name, just as you have. Oho, can't you remember that? It's a simple name. Um, sorry, those names are hard to pronounce for me. But the kind of the focus on the builder here, I think, is another shout out to to or at least to me, it reminds me of, of Dick's focus on the creative act, that the God needs the helper of someone who actually affect things in the real world. So those are those de- de- demiurges, I, I guess. I think that's what Oho, Oho is here trying to say. Um, now, Oho eventually gives like a prophecy to Peter Sands in this hallucina- hallucination, and that is that St. Sophia will come back, will be reborn. Now, he doesn't know the St. Sophia. He thinks it's kind of a silly joke. And then he the drugs wear out and he's back to normal. And he's able to then have a conversation with Dr. Dr. Abernathy. Um, and actually, they sit down to have a game of play a game of poker. Um, and while they're doing this, they start to have a game of poker. And they talk a little bit about Lorene Ray trying to convert to, to Christianity and what it would take. And she'd have to go to class. And there's only one other person in kind of adult education for Christianity. So it'd be a small class. And, and he basically gives her the process it would take to be, to be converted. And then they sit down to have a poker game. And at this time, Tibber McMasters arrives in his, in his cart. He arrives, he kind of crashes the poker game. He eventually joins in the poker game, but he he's asking for advice from these Christians about how to proceed. And essentially he's he's begging, almost begging for a way out of this pilgrimage, which he's scared to death to go on. And one easy way to get out of this would be to, you know, convert to Christianity, right? Then he wouldn't be, a, he wouldn't have to work for the servants of wrath anymore. Right, Dr. Abernathy, so Thor kind of doesn't really trust his motives and really doesn't encourage him to join uh, the Christian sect. Now, later on after the game, Abernathy and Peter Sand have a conversation that basically center on Peter Sand's confession. He has to go to the confession. I'm not quite sure which sect of Christianity this is. It seems to be, you know, it has confession, which, uh, you know, so it's a, an individual confession. So it seems to be a Catholic thing. 
although I don't think it's really ever identified. It's just the Christians. Um, but he goes through the confession, and, and Dr. Abernathy eventually scolds him on sleeping with Lorraine Ray for using drugs for for these kinds of things. But he does uh, mention the hallucination he has and talks about this St. Sophia returning. And Dr. Abernathy says there is no St. Sophia, but they look it up and they find there is a, it's a reference to Hagia Sophia, which means holy wisdom. Now you can read this, that they're going to return the Hagia Sophia, presumably be destroyed in the war, right? Almost kind of like the raising of Held Scala. But Dr. Abernathy deduces that it's, a deeper meaning here that it's the return of holy wisdom, right? The return of knowledge of sort. Now, of course, in the Christian sense, Jesus is is the word of God made flesh, and that will be the one who returns. Um, the more Gnostic you may have a different reading of it, I'm not sure. But that's, so the return of St. Sophia is the return of wisdom, the return of knowledge. Again, a, a really reflective of the Gnostic ideas we looked at before. Um, actually, we're in chapter four now, if you're reading along. Um, all this takes place over three and four, this, this Aber- Dr. Abernathy stuff with Peter Sands and, and Miss Ray and the arrival of Tibor. But for me, the most interesting thing about in this part of the novel, especially in chapter four, is, is the conversation between Tibor and Dr. Abernathy, where Tibor basically is asking if he can become a Christian to get out of this pilgrimage. And Dr. Abernathy says, well, I guess so. But we really get to the truth of the matter, and Dr. Abernathy is able to expose the tr- what, what's really important for Tibor, which is fulfilling this, doing this job, you know, completing this mural. It's not so much about belief as it is to actually do this great mural and to uh, achieve this. And for him, it means actually finding Karl Luftenfeld, viewing him, and then be able to paint his, his likeness. There's also a moral dimension to this in that he's been paid and he has a moral responsibility to complete the job once that he's been paid for and he doesn't want to uh, betray his employer as well. And it's kind of a sin. um, But then Dr. Abernathy gets to the main point, which is why not just paint a depiction of the Deus Aries? Why does it have to be accurate, right? That that's not really what matters. So what matters is the experience people have when they see it. So if they see a beautiful painting or a horrifying painting, whatever the, the emotion is, is trying to be conveyed in this mural, you know, what's important is that experience. It doesn't matter that it's, it's realistic or not. And so he says, why not just take a vacation, you know, come back, you know, after a month, say, oh, I went and I found Carl Luftenfeld. Here's what he looks like and draw him, right? It wouldn't really matter to anyone who would actually see the mural um but this actually convinces tibor more that he has to go on this pilgrimage because saying what really matters is is truth for him and he says it wouldn't be right that's why i've been commissioned to paint the god of wrath in the center of the mural in appropriate lifelike authentic colors so it's therefore important to know what he's really like and then dr abernathy says well you know no one recognizes knows what he looks like anyway so it doesn't matter and tibor says that's it's not that I know I could fake it. I could manufacture a face from a repro I've, I've seen. The thing is, it wouldn't be true. Um, now, there's a, another, there, there's a, there's a whole conversation these ha- these two characters have over, like, the nature of God, whether God's nature is changing or unchanging. And, and there's a suggestion that that sort of matters with kind of the art. Now, Abernathy's point seems to be that because the Christian God is unchanging, 
and his nature is unchanging and, and permanent, the depiction of him you really can't corrupt that unchanging nature. Right? That's what he thinks. He says, quote, I'll disclose something more to you which you should know. I came across in a textbook about the religions of the ancient Greeks. Their god Apollo was the god of constancy, and when he tested, he was always found to be the same. This was a major quality in him. He was what he was always. In fact, one could define Apollo by this and the Apollonian personality in humans. But Dionysus, the god of unreason, was the god of metamorphosis. Thus, you see, the god of wrath, also being a god of unreason like Dionysus, could be expected to hide, to camouflage himself, to conceal, to be what he is not. Can you imagine worshiping a god who, rather than is, is what he's not? End quote. So he's challenging him kind of on the, the, the impossibility of, of depicting him realistically. And even if you do, if you do it realistically, it doesn't matter because the god of wrath is, is like Dionysus. He's, always, he's morphing his who he is. He's not a god of constancy. Um, anyways, this whole conversation I find very fascinating and, and interesting, and it parallels the overall theme of, of the book. Uh, you actually could probably stop it at this point if you don't actually want to see the pilgrimage, because it's um, the theology is all front-loaded. I, I think this is partially what Roger Zeleny helped Dick with, that's my understanding. Um, Dick wrote the earlier part and got kind of stuck at this theology. Um, so um, chapters 5 and 6 kind of go together. They... We don't really know where we are in these chapters, and it's not till the end of chapter six that we're, we learn that we're, we're seeing things from the point of view of Karl Luftenfeld, right? He's not named until the very last lines of chapter six. Um, and it's, it, they're really bizarre chapters, so I'm just going to try to give you a suggestion of what happens in these, these chapters. Um, I actually had to, I was doing the audiobook, and I had to go back and, you know, re-listen to a lot of this to fully get it. So he's living in these, this bunker. Um, it's not really identified where. They're called the digs. So they're basically these underground bunkers. Yeah, we, see, we see that term throughout this book, actually, digs. Um, he's got this big lump in his, on his head um, between his left temple and forehead. And, and it's, it's hurting more and more, right? And he's living with this 24-year-old mentally handicapped girl, Alice, who always calls him daddy, even though he says, like, I'm not your daddy. And it sounds like he just found her and started taking care of her um, sometime after the, after the war. And he has some kind of weird images and he sees uh, strange light coming down on him. And he suddenly, at one point, just decides to get this thing, this lump out. And it's like a piece of metal. It's like a shrapnel from the war or something that's stuck into his, into his head. And so he asks for a mirror and she looks in the mirror and he, he sees like, you know, he could see the metal and then he asks for a knife. Then he asks, asks Alice, Alice, go get him a knife. And he starts cutting at his, his head. Uh, I think he tells Alice to go sleep in the other room because he's going to be super gross and you don't want to see this. But he starts cutting at this metal with this big lump in his head and he's eventually able to pull out this, this lump of, of metal. And after pulling this out, he, he passes out, right? And... And he starts to have a dream. But I think chapter six, where is a, is a conversation he has with a rat. This might be a dream. I, I'm not quite sure what goes on in that chapter, to be honest. But uh, what's really cool here is Alice arrives. And I'll, I'll just read this section to you. 
She tiptoed in with exaggerated case of a child and raised both hands to her mouth and bit her knuckles because she knew that she was not supposed to bother him and she felt that if she cried, she would. But it was like Halloween, like a mask that he was wearing. She saw the shirt falling on the floor. He was so wet. Daddy, she whispered and laid it across his face, pressing lightly, lightly with fingertips like spider legs until it absorbed all, all, all of it which had covered him like mud or swarming insects. Later, she pulled it away because she had been cut many times. She knew such things dry and stick and hurt to pull away. He looked cleaner then, though somehow still altered, and she clutched it to her and took it back with him, back to the old room because it was his, because he had given her toys and chocolate and because she wanted something of his which he would not want anymore. Not when it was that dirty, end quote. So what he, he did is, is took his shirt and like cleaned up the blood, right? Because that's why his face looked like a Halloween mask or the description later on, like uh, mud or swarming insects. There's all the blood on his face and she cl- puts the, the the shirt on it and the shirt then has his depiction. It's like a, it's like a Shroud of Turin kind of uh, moment. So chapter six, I don't know. It could be a dream. It could just be sometime later because now Carl Luftenfeld is like not in the digs anymore. He's he's kind of in some kind of sewer or it's called a ditch, um, but he's down there and he starts having this conversation with this rat creature and it's kind of a psychic conversation because it's all in italics. It's not in quotes. Uh, Karl Luftenfeld, when he talks, it's in quotes. So he seems to be talking out loud, but this thing seems to talk to him via his mind. Uh, he does here explain that there's a shrapnel in his head and, he, and he, it moves around and sometimes he has to remove it. And, and the rat thing says, yes, in fact, I see one of the pieces near your surface will work its way free soon. Then you must break your skin with your claws and withdraw it. And Karl Luftenfeld says, I don't have claws my uh, or oh my fingernails that must be what's causing my headache another piece is moving around fortunately i can use my knife that time i had to claw it out was pretty bad and then they give him so like they offer up six rats i don't know how to read this if they literally offered him up six rats that he cooked or or this is also kind of a quasi hallucination and he just cooked these rats and cooked them um but then it's revealed at the end of this that all this has been from this has all been happening to carl Luftenfell. So really bizarre chapters that that they throw in here. Um, it's going to be important later in the novel and in the part two of this series we'll um, talk about Carl Luftenfeld's role in, in this in this novel. Um, but you know that's that especially Alice. Alice becomes an important character later on. So chapter seven we we return to Tibor McMasters and he rides in style with flourish, pulled by a faithful cow. That's how uh, Dick and Zelaney open up this passage on this on this pilgrimage. But he's almost immediately like trapped uh, in the road, just like we thought would happen, right? Being pulled by this cow on this wheelchair, you know, on these old post-apocalyptic highways, you know, he gets stuck. Um, now there's all these like all these kids show up. He starts calling, demanding help, saying, "I'm a, you know, I'm with the servants of wrath. You gotta help me." And these kids come, and the kids are called at. What's the what's the term he used? It's a pretty racist term, actually. This is a bit bothersome. Like these these apparently are. It's not clear if these are, like, 
African-Americans who survived the war and are, are living out here in the countryside, they're all boys, or if they're, I don't know if they were, like, because of radiation, they have darker skin. But anyways, they eventually help him out. Um, now, another cool thing here is as he's driving through here, this section, he sees these farmers, these people trying to make a living in this devastated landscape where it's mostly slate caused from the war and there's just a little bit of dirt on top of it and they're trying to grow wheat and there's these robots that they've kind of remade into farmers and then there's some farmers on the side of the road too uh this all harkens back to some there's a story that dick wrote in the 50s which is about people trying to reclaim a world after a after a nuclear war and it's got some similar imagery here Quote, a thin layer of soil over slag, a few limp wheat stalks waved, thin and emaciated. The ground was terrible, the worst he had ever seen. He could feel the metal beneath his cart almost at the surface. Bent men and women watering watering their sickly crops with tin cans, old metal containers picked up from the ruins. An ox was pulling a crude car. In another field, a woman weeded by hand. All moved slowly, stupidly, victims of hookworm from the soil. They were all barefoot. The children evidently hadn't been picked up yet, but they soon would. So it's pretty devastating um, imagery. Now, he starts to teach the little kids some elements, some principles of of the Sons of Wrath when uh, an adult figure approaches and the kids um, scatter. And then it's revealed that, that this is a kind of a robot extension of the Great Sea. Now, the Great Sea, you know, from a story Dick wrote back in the early 50s, it's about, you know, generations after war, people send their one person a year essentially to be sacrificed to the Great Sea, but they have to ask questions. And if they can, I guess the idea is if they can trick it into getting the question wrong, they'll sort of, they'll live, right? And the Great Sea will no longer torment them. But it, they're so far removed from the knowledge of, time before the war that there's no way they can answer they ask stupid questions like why does it rain which is easily easy for them to look up now that obviously that the fate of tibor mcmaster can't be to die from the great sea because it wouldn't work for the story so he does go to the now in now in the original story these people actually have to go to the supercomputer itself here the great sea comes to him as this kind of robot, like a representative of the Great Sea, an extension of the Great Sea um, in Android form. And the Great Sea keeps trying to talk him into just coming to the actual physical computer. Tibber McMaster's delays, and he has the questions. So he goes through the ritual of asking the three questions. And you can go back and listen to my episode on the Great Sea where I talk about this. It, it very, it's very, It's one of a couple scenes here that parallel scenes from Siegfried, the Wagner opera. Uh, there's the asking the questions of the God is one important scene in Siegfried. And then I'll, I'll mention the other one in a little bit. But uh, the three questions are first, why does it rain? Second is, is why does the sun move across the sky? Uh, he ans- The Great Sea answers both of them. Actually, the Great Sea is in, a, in this version of, of a female android, a robot. That, that kind of comes up to him. Not, I guess an android would be the wrong term, even robot, because it's not. It's just an extension of the Great Sea itself. Um, the third he asks is the origin of the of the world. These are the same three questions that were asked in the original story, but um, 
the Great Sea answers them all fine. Now here, the Great Sea is not really able to answer confidently to Tibber's satisfaction the question about the origin of the world because the Great Sea only has theories to go off of. The, and, and Tibber questions the Great Sea on this saying, you're not giving me the accurate answer, you're just giving me a theory. And the Great Sea sort of acknowledges this. Doesn't let him go, though, but then Tipper McMaster just pulls out a derringer and shoots this projection of the Great Sea, and he goes on his way. Now, chapter 8 and 9 I'll just take together, and I'll close up what I want to say in this this first half of my my consideration of Deus Ere. Chapters 8 and 9 really show Tipper McMaster just meeting all these weird creatures that have evolved in the aftermath of the war. Again, these are things that Dick was interested in in his early fiction. He's trying to recycle them. It doesn't really work because of the timeline. It's just after 15 years, are there really going to be lizard people? 15 years after the war, lizard people, bird people, these weird things called runners, which are actually sort of uh, almost like kangaroos. Uh, I think there's some kind of mammal that evolved. Quote, fat and round, covered with thick pelts, beady eyes, quivering noses, a great kangaroo legs, maybe some kind of nutreas or something evolved. I don't know. Um, and then there's talking birds. And they even sing hymns and sing songs. It's really bizarre stuff, and it, it's, it's, it's rather fun. So he meets these people and, and talks to them, and they talk about theology. They even talk about where the Garden of Eden is. And this, they have regular English names like Jackson and Potter, the, the, the lizard people, I mean. It, and it seems they, they have conflicts between these different species. It, it's kind of fun and weird. Um, and if you like that kind of stuff, it's it's fun. I could, it's really hard to take seriously, though. It, it's almost comical as well. And I guess that's... It, I mean, I guess take it or leave it. Um, but they're, they're, they're there. Um, but I do want to mention that there's a moment here that, again, parallels directly a scene from, from Siegfried. So he... Tipper McMasters runs into this uh, worm, an evolved worm that's kind of like a dragon guarding a horde. And Tipper McMaster defeats him, shoots him. They have a conversation, and Tipper McMaster, you know, says, "Sorry, I have to kill you." Kills him, and he's got this horde of of basically stuff he collected from the war, junk. But it's like the dragon's horde. And after killing him, killing the worm, he's able to understand the language of the bird people. And so he's able to talk to the bird and he says, I can understand you now. And the bird says, because you dipped your hand into the excretion of the worm, now you can understand all the birds, not just me, but I can tell you everything you need to know. Now, this is exactly what happens in, in Siegfried. So um, in Siegfried, the dragon, who was one of the giants who built Valhalla, after doing that, he kills his brother, takes, takes the ring, and turns himself into a dragon, takes the hoard too, the, all the gold, all the Rangold and the ring, and guards it like a dragon, like smog almost, right? So this is that kind of, I don't know if this is the first literary depiction of like the dragon on the hoard, but it's, it's one of the early ones. And then Siegfried is the first fearless warrior, not, you know, the, so in the Valkyrie, the previous opera, Wotan tries to get the ring back using his his son Sigmund, um, giving him a sword and everything. But this is this is he's challenged on this by Fricka, his wife, who says you've given him all the advantages, or you've created him to do this. You can't. You'd be breaking your vow to give the ring as payment for the building of Valhalla to this 
giant who becomes a dragon, you'd be breaking your vow. It's just like a really bad loophole. Um, you, it, the hero has to be free. And so Wotan, of course, then has to kill his son and prisons Brunhilde for, for helping his, his son and all that. That's the Valkyrie. But uh, he had Sigmund, before he died, had sex with his sister Singlinda, gave birth to Siegfried. Now, Siegfried is going to be then the liberated hero who remakes the sword himself because the sword was broken in the Valkyrie. Um, he's also fearless because uh, I'm not sure. I don't quite remember why he's raised without fear, but, you know, it's just kind of established. He's fearless. So he makes his own sword and he goes on this quest. And on the way, he you know, runs into this dragon, um, kills the dragon, gets the ring, gets the Tarnhel, the helmet that can let him change his form and gets all the gold. And he's then puts his hands into the dragon's body, into the blood. I don't remember if he drinks some of it or he tastes it, but as a result of this, he can listen, he can understand the birds and the birds then guide him on to the next stage in his quest, which is to free Brunhilde from where she was imprisoned by Wotan. Sorry if I botched details on that, but that's the basic core story of Siegfried, the, the third opera in the Ring Cycle by Wagner. And Dick's just recycling it here. Um, now, when I blogged about Deo series years and years ago, I, I, I noticed the Siegfried connections. And I don't know if, like, Frank Bertrand wrote an essay where he talks a little bit about Wagnerian influence on, on Philip Dick. And if you just search Deus Airy, Wagner, Philip Dick, you can find that article. Uh, it's called Digressions on Illusions in PKDs, A Scanner Darkly. He does, though, mention Deus Airy a few times in that in that article. Not not as explicitly as, as I did here. But I can't find any other mentions of these things together, of, of Wagner, Siegfried, and um, on Deus Airy. So I don't I don't know maybe I'm crazy but it, to me it's pretty obvious that he's just copying the the imagery it's all there you got the worm guarding the treasure vault and then after slaying the the, the, the dragon he can understand the birds it's, um, it seems to be almost like a one for one copying of Siegfried um, but anyways that's all I'm going to, to that's where I'm going to stop for now I'm at about an but I'm at about an hour and again I, I said I didn't want to waste too much of your time with with deus Ares, deus Ere. i i don't hate this novel to be honest i understand why some people do and i and i i'm aware of the things that don't work but it's it's just kind of quirky and weird and and i enjoy that i i always like that about philip philip dick um it, it's not it's not your classic post-apocalyptic novel too right one thing i do want to say though is one thing i liked about dr blood money was it was a post-apocalyptic setting that was um, that worked. It wasn't a society where people just, it wasn't a, a, a Hobbesian nightmare like most post-apocalyptic literature is, you know, where as soon as government collapses, people are just killing each other. Um, and we kind of re regress down to our base instincts. Uh, but in Dr. Bloodman, they're able to build communities and cooperate and, and basically work together. In Deus Eri too, even though you have two competing philosophies and religions, they're not at war. They visit each other. Tipper McMaster goes to see Dr. Abernathy for advice and help, and they play poker together, and people convert back and forth. And, you know, it's it seems the society outside of these enclaves where humans are 
it's a bit chaotic, you know, and there's all these weird creatures. But even they, they have sort of a society worked out amongst themselves. So it's it's not a bleak post-apocalyptic story, um, really. It could be a lot bleaker, right? But it, it's not. It's Yeah, it's a dangerous pilgrimage for him to go on. It's There's no... You know, there's no fantasy about how easy this quest will be for Tiburping Master and his state. But really, it's more that he's afraid that his his wheelchair is going to be stuck in a ditch or something. That's that's the biggest threat to him, not not these different creatures he's he's facing. He's able to defend himself with just a little derringer. Um, so, but I but really, we're the core society that we meet, Charlottesville in Utah. It's a functioning society with. Yes, competing religions, but um, not. It's not. It's not. It's not the Hobbesian nightmare. I'm. I'm suggesting you've seen a lot of post-apocalyptic literature, and and I appreciate that. So, anyways, if you're reading along, check out Dea Siri. Um, let me know what you think. Uh, let me know what you think of uh, any of my observations about this novel. You can send me an email or leave a post below. Uh, in the next episode, I'll look at chapters ten through through nineteen, which will finish up. The novel will come back and try to make sense of of the Alice Carl Luftenfeld stuff and, and see where that goes. It, it's, it's one of those elements that until you see the full arc of, of the story, it's hard to make sense of chapters five and six. So you got to put an asterisk by those chapters in my comments on it for now, um, because they really you have to kind of complete the whole novel before you can fully understand uh, what's going on there. So I'll come back to those chapters next time. But So I'll look at, at 10 through 19, but also go back and, and revisit 5 and 6 with uh, the whole arc of that character laid out. So um, as always, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time um, with the rest of my thoughts on, on Deus Ere. To feel these changes happening in me